I would like all the victims of phone hacking to know how completely and deeply sorry I am. This is the most humble day of my career. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. The scandal that has engulfed billionaire Rupert Murdoch is unfolding at breathtaking speed. The Murdochs and their empire are not out of trouble yet. Far from it. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and little juicy sonic tidbits we find all over the world. On the air, the internet, we listen to everything we can get our ears on and bring you the best of what we hear each week. The humbling of a billionaire media mogul, Rupert Murdoch, a man who is not used to groveling, is on an apology tour this morning. But I would like to say as well just how sorry I am. I'm sorry, and I apologize. Watch again a little slower. A man with a shaving cream pie aimed at Rupert Murdoch, muttering, you greedy billionaire. One thing you can say about Rupert Murdoch without causing controversy is that his career has been long and controversial. And like it or not, his impact on the media of the world has been huge. Another thing you can say about the now 80-year-old media magnet is that he never goes very long without a scandal nipping at his heels, and often biting him in the butt. Most recently, of course, there was the phone-tapping scandal in Britain, alleging that Murdoch's paper, The News of the World, hacked the phone lines of not only the royal family and other celebrities, but of a 13-year-old murder victim and the relatives of fallen soldiers. The fallout? Murdoch closed down News of the World, Britain's best-selling newspaper, saw two of his editors arrested, and had to abandon what would have been the biggest deal of his career, the $12 billion takeover of British Sky Broadcasting. This kind of shakeup is nothing new for Murdoch, who's always been in the spotlight, for better or worse. And he comes by it naturally. As you'll hear in this hour's look at Murdoch's life and career, his father forged the path before him, and young Rupert took to it like ink on paper. Here's an encore presentation of Murdoch at 80, produced by Colin McNulty in 2011, presented by Steve Hewlett. You spent quite a lot of time with Rupert Murdoch. An enormous amount of time, yes. What sort of man did you find? Well, I... uh, Hmm. He is, fairly speaking, all over the scale. Sometimes a charming man. He's, of course, been demonized by a lot of people. Sometimes an incredibly gruff and off-putting man. I find it hard to believe he is probably one of the most powerful men in the world. And he said, I'll never fire you for making a mistake. But he said, I'll sure fire you for not making decisions. Very, very good businessman. He gets energy out of your front pages. He loves gossip. And I think he rather enjoyed winning the game. Anyone who would like to characterize Rupert as vulnerable or old-fashioned, from a competitive point of view, in my opinion, would do so at their peril. You can be, when you're sitting with him, find yourself really worried. He does diffuse this extremely powerful force which has people shaking in their shoes. A Wizard of Oz kind of figure, a man living in a high tower with a giant megaphone who, if you actually stripped away the curtain in front of him, uh, wouldn't be a particularly significant individual at all. He can be as engaged, as focused, as avaricious. You know, the man who's ready to take on the world. like a feeling of power you have as a newspaper proprietor of being able to sort of 
formulate policies for a large number of newspapers in every state of Australia. Well, there's only one honest answer to that, of course, and that's yes. Although, if I can just hold you there for a minute, I think that this question of the power of newspaper proprietors can be greatly overdone. Rupert Murdoch, in a BBC profile of him back in the 1960s. He was already a big player in Australia, but showing signs of interest in matters closer to the old country, he was lining up to buy the news of the world. But little did anyone know then that he would go on to build a global media empire of almost unprecedented reach and influence, in the course of which he's hardly ever been out of the news, or at least not for long, and the last few months have been no exception. With the phone hacking scandal brewing nicely over at Wapping, Murdoch has been busy trying to engineer the biggest corporate transaction of his entire career. News Corporation's plan to buy the 61% of B-Sky B it doesn't already own. Later this week, he'll be 80. Are there reasons, do you think, legitimately to fear Rupert Murdoch? Uh, absolutely. If you get in his way and he can hurt you, he will. I think the man is a son of a bitch. Michael Wolfe wrote a biography of Rupert Murdoch, the man who owns the news, in 2008. It was based on over 50 hours of interviews with the man himself, and amongst other things, out of it came specific details about Murdoch's third marriage to Wendy Deng. When the book was coming to a conclusion and they had gotten a copy of it, Rupert's sort of right-hand man came to me and, 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 and he said, Rupert has a lot of problems with this book, but there's one change, and if you make it we will support the book. And what was it? They wanted um, the date that he met Wendy changed. Although many people know that he met Wendy well before his marriage ended, he wanted it moved to after his marriage ended. And you didn't change it? And um, I would not be telling this story if I had changed it. Two months after the book came out, the New York Post started to run items about my relationship with a woman other than my wife. And there ensued um, a month that I would like uh, never to repeat. A cautionary tale, although who knows whether the man himself knew anything of his minion's concern for supposed marital sensitivities. In any event, it's a far cry from the fashionable, almost genteel Melbourne society of Murdoch's youth. And it's there, in the person of Rupert's father, Sir Keith Murdoch, that the first clues to Murdoch the man are to be found. Chairman of the Melbourne Herald, connoisseur of the arts and owner of shares in numerous other newspapers and radio stations, Keith Murdoch had become a household name in Australia as the whistleblower on one of that country's most tragic events, the Gallipoli campaign. Sir Keith had been a war correspondent in the First World War. Former Sunday Times special correspondent Philip Knightley. He fell under the influence of a reporter for the London Daily Telegraph who felt the campaign was a disaster. And listening to him, Sir Keith realised that he was on privilege access to perhaps the greatest story of the First World War. The full extent of the horrific Anzac casualties at Gallipoli wasn't covered in the Australian papers. It had been censored. But infuriated by what he'd witnessed, the young Keith wrote a letter to the Australian Prime Minister and copied it to Herbert Asquith at number 10. Somehow or other, a copy fell into the hands of the editor of The Times. And what was the essence of what the letter said? The Australian troops were fine, upstanding, bright, long-legged, powerful men who fought bravely in every engagement. And the English were shriveled, little, poor specimens of humanity. It is unfortunately one of the most terrible chapters in our history. 
there has been a series of disastrous underestimations. Over 11,000 Anzac troops were killed by Turkish forces. They and other troops were dashed against the Turkish lines and broken, and the slaughter of fine youths was appalling. The implication was clear. Withdrawal from Gallipoli was vital. They are weakened sadly by dysentery and illness. They are overworked through lack of reinforcements. And as an army of offence, they are done. It was effectively one of the greatest scoops of the First World War and sealed Murdoch Senior's reputation. When Keith Murdoch got back to Australia, he was hailed as a hero. And I think it made Rupert realise later on that in order to be a hero, you have to take risks and you have to gamble. In October 1950, Sir Keith, as he had by then become, sent young Rupert, his only son, who it appears had already got the family business running in his blood, back to the old country to be educated at Oxford University. The historian, Acer, Lord Briggs, became Rupert's principal tutor. I'm bound to say that I probably did see more of Rupert as a pupil than anybody else I've ever taught him my life. I taught him politics, and he was interested in that, but in a patchy sort of a way. He was left-wing. Uh, he used to have a, a statue of Lenin on his desk, and it was very curious to go into this old panelled room and see Lenin as the first uh, person you saw when you went in. Rupert Murdoch and Lenin, well I never. He joined the university's labour club but in a foretaste of what was to come soon began pushing the boundaries of what to his contemporaries passed for fair play. Sir Gerald Kaufman was the club's chairman. There was this rule against canvassing for office in the labour club but with Rupert if he wanted office he was going to try and make sure he got it. One of his supporters used to send out letters through the inter-college mail with rooting for Rupert written on the back. Complaints were lodged against him and I had to set up a tribunal of inquiry which Rupert called the bloody tribunal and Rupert was unseated as secretary. I think Rupert has never believed in his life that there are rules which should in no conceivable sense be broken. I had to go on what was probably the most difficult moment in my life down to that point and tell him that his father had died. It was a devastating moment because Rupert was really extremely fond of his father and admired him and felt that behind him there was a whole journalistic inheritance which he would like somehow or other to get involved in. Rupert was left with a small interest in an Adelaide newspaper and His mother, Dame Elizabeth, before, recalled the time in an interview in the 1980s. He'd written this letter, which Keith got on the Thursday morning, and he died on the Saturday. I remember Keith saying, Thank God, the boy's got it. <laughs> the young, brash Oxford graduate must have caused some amusement when he first joined the News Limited board. Newspaper men aren't soft, and young Rupert certainly didn't look very hard with his round face and socialist ideals. However, violent tremors soon were felt all over conservative Adelaide when it became known just how single-minded Murdoch could be. It might have started with just one small Adelaide evening newspaper, but Murdoch Jr. dramatically increased circulation and began rapidly expanding the family business by borrowing money and buying other papers. In 1958, he bought the Sydney tabloid The Daily Mirror. In 1964, Rupert launched Australia's first national daily paper, The Australian, a quality broadsheet based in the nation's capital, Canberra. 
This meant, because no other newspapers were based there, that every night the typeset plates had to be flown to the printing presses in Sydney. It was bold, buccaneering stuff, regarded by many as bordering on stupidity, as former editor Les Hollings recalled in this 1981 interview. Canberra airboarding winter is diabolical for fog. And there's a mountain as well. One night, the planes couldn't get off. Rupert was out on the tarmac in his pyjamas. And he was saying, I can see the mountain. I can see it. Take off, take off, take off. <laughs> Enormous enthusiasm he had. Do you think it's possible that um, people have underestimated you? Yes, I think so. I don't know whether it's a question of underestimating me so much as uh, just misjudging the situation. They had it pretty easy themselves uh, in what they were doing. They were doing well. And uh, they didn't see these opportunities because they weren't looking for them. And when someone else found them, they still couldn't believe that the opportunities were really there. Seeing opportunities missed or ignored by others, especially wealthy, comfortable incumbents, was Murdoch's modus operandi. And when he looked across the world, back to Britain, he saw more establishment complacency than you could shake a stick at. And in 1969, he made his first move. The News of the World, owned by the Carr family for over 75 years, needed an injection of cash. The family decided to sell some shares to attract an investor. Rupert offered to buy the shares at the company AGM at the Connaught. But there was a rival bidder, Robert Maxwell. In the end, though, it wasn't about money, it was about who could charm the room. Mr Murdoch, what's the state of play now regarding the news of the world? The cars and uh, ourselves have won. Uh, Mr Maxwell certainly has lost. Not for the last time, Murdoch had outmaneuvered Maxwell and his company. Pergamon Press have made a fair and bona fide offer in October, which has been frustrated and defeated after three months of manoeuvring, which were cynical. And if this deal in the end really is approved, then somebody should wake up Sir Walter Raleigh and tell him that El Dorado has been found. Well, there have been statements, haven't there? Strong statements on both sides. We've just denied some of the uh, misstatements by the other side, that's all. But hasn't it virtually developed? We've never said anything personal. Hasn't it developed into oh, a personal yesterday, uh, Mr Maxwell called me a moth-eaten kangaroo. Well, I've uh, <laughs> never got quite to that stage. Six months later, Sir William Carr fell ill and Murdoch took control of the paper. Back then, the British media world didn't really know very much about this hands-on proprietor from down under, but they soon would. Christine Keeler, the girl who sparked off a drama of government scandals, spying, intrigue and even death. On Sunday, Christine opens her secret diary and tells the first full story in The News of the World. I was young and naive then, but now I've had time to think. This is the first time the public will be able to read the real truth. Yes, I think that the... Uh, we've got to lead with it, obviously. Former Sun assistant editor, Roy Greenslade. When Rupert arrived in Britain and took over the News of the World in 69, he got himself embroiled in this whole problem of deciding to reheat the Christine Keeler memoirs. Well, of course, we should take the offensive, in other words. The establishment, as he would term it, turned on him straight away. He felt the weight of um, opprobrium. Do you think any of your rival newspapers would have wanted to have this story? Yes, of course they would have. And there's a lot of this criticism uh, of this story and of the news of the world is based on jealousy because we've gone up so much in circulation in the last six or eight months. They like to say that we've become dirty. It's quite wrong. Have a look at some of the other papers. They've had some of the filthiest journalism. They've even had stories about women masturbating on horses. 
And yet they get holier than thou. It was during the Keeler Memoirs affair that the satirical news magazine Private Eye started what would become a long-running feud with Murdoch. Coincidentally, one of the Eye's contributors at the time was another product of suburban Melbourne, Barry Humphreys. I can't remember what the reason for Private Eye's disapproval was. Was it just because it was sort of about sex? This was a subject over which Private Eye was always notoriously coy. Anything a bit raunchy was not quite to their taste. It was Private Eye, after all, who called him the dirty digger, which I think is rather unfair, quite frankly. Private Eye got down and dirty quite, quite as many times as Rupert did. Later that same year, in the summer of 1969, Murdoch's sights moved to the sun, then an ailing broadsheet owned by IPC under the chairmanship of Hugh Cudlip. Robert Maxwell was also sniffing around and doing his best to stop Murdoch in his tracks. Well, Mr Maxwell says that you'll probably make the sun a daily news of the world. Is this your intention? That'd be all right if I could sell six and a half million every day. Will it have any political orientation? No, no, no fixed orientation in the sense that it'll be allied to any party. Certainly not. It'll be quite independent. Murdoch did a deal with the print unions, promising fewer redundancies than the rival bidders. In return, the unions backed him and put pressure on IPC to sell to News Limited. Rupert did the rest and reportedly paid just half a million pounds for the sun. Roy Greenslade was there. That first year, Rupert was around in the office in Bouvery Street all the time. I would carry wet proofs into Larry Lamb, the editor's office, and Rupert would be there getting his fingers really dirty and thumbing through the pages and saying, do you think that's the right headline? Which was always very strange because directly you said something that you felt was wrong about it. He would turn around and say to the editor, you're great boss. What do you think about that, Larry? And you could be daggers drawn with the editor looking at it. But that was the nature of the beast. But there was another side to Rupert Murdoch, as the man who sold him the son, Hugh Cudlip, recalled in this 1981 interview. When I saw him first, he was a, a sub-editor learning the job in a brief time on the Daily Express. And I thought that he was rather shy, rather charming, rather nice. When I saw him ten years later, one rather felt that he looked at one with all the sincerity of a bull constrictor contemplating his next meal. It's all a bit of a paradox. He's a polite suburbanite, but has the common touch. There's the Presbyterian upbringing, but the obsession with salacious gossip. He loathes the establishment, but craves respectability. In any event, he was mightily proud of what quickly became his soar-away son. If one looks at the newspapers that you own here, one can scarcely say that you have raised the standards of British journalism. Oh, I absolutely defy that. I think that's very wrong. You could certainly and say it about the sun of the news of the world, couldn't you? Do you, do you, oh, read, I think do you read them often? I think every day, and I think we've improved them greatly. Are you proud of them? Yes, indeed. Particularly the sun. Are you really? <laughs> On the front page of the sun? Absolutely. When you see that somebody's life has been stomped on and their prospects ruined and their family dragged through the mire. Well, you very seldom find that in the sun, and you do find occasionally... <laughs> I know, you find the big news covered brilliantly, you find a lot of fun there. Big news is on page six. No, it's not. It's, it, when, the when sensation is, is on page one. That's not true. When there's big news, a budget, I mean, you'll find it page one, two, three, four, five. But even if there was a budget to report, it would have to share the space on page three with a topless lovely. The Sun had a bevy of them, usually with homely names like Linda, Stephanie, Gail, Debbie and Samantha. Hugh Cudlip was appalled. I didn't want to be the head of an empire which published dirty pictures on page three. 
However, that was the situation. And now the sun has the top sail. Good luck to it. There is no doubt, absolutely no doubt, if you look at the figures, that from the inception of page three onwards, circulation took off. It's ooh-la-la -la week in the sun. It's snowy, but it's nice. Fabulous French prizes to be won. Win a bikini bottom and wear it on a free holiday in Saint-Tropez. And girls, find out how to be a page three pin-up yourself in the sun. You know, if you think about his economic philosophy, which is very straightforward, that the market is true democracy. You are constantly saying to yourself, what do people want? That's why he doesn't like regulators, why he doesn't like the establishment, because they have a, a sort of aesthetics and so on. People want entertainment, they want sex and sensationalism and sport. The wholesalers are, who are reflecting what the news agents are ordering, which are, who are reflecting what the ordinary people are doing and ordering, have ordered another 219,000 copies this week. And everyone can 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 with this can of sausage suspenders, stockings, knickers and gutter. Ooh la la. It's all in the sun this week. He had a good ability to flick through a paper, literally going through it like that, and agreeing or not agreeing that this was a decent paper. On the political front, however, the sun found its true voice under legendary editor Kelvin McKenzie, who even now has nothing but admiration for his erstwhile boss. What did he make of some of your better-known headlines? I mean, you've got to understand, Rupert is a serious-minded businessman. So, for instance, so he calls up and says, what do you got for tomorrow? I could tell him the truth, which was, we're running a story saying, three-legged nun in secret hotel romp with four-ton elephant. Rupert, well, isn't there anything else going on? Are you lot always going on about what's happening below the waist? For God's sake! Raise your bar. So I decided that the easiest thing to do was actually, while talking to him, which was turn to page two of the Evening Standard and read out whatever was the two lead in the Evening Standard. And then, of course, a couple of days later, he'd ring up and say, what's all this rubbish about bloody nuns and elephants you got on the page? I thought, well, you told me that there's going to be a crackdown on the old bludgers. And I'd say, do you know, I don't think so, Rupert. I, I think that's, I, I read that story somewhere in the standard, you know, I don't think I read it. But he is 101% on side with whoever's editing. The son, I think, uh, knows how to speak to the common man and woman uh, and speak for them. There's a few uh, common men and women out there who don't agree with <laughs> Well, 14 million read them every day. Within 10 years of Murdoch buying it, The Sun had become Britain's best-selling daily paper, and it was obvious that Rupert had his sights set on greater things. But according to Roy Greenslade, that ambition was there right from the start. On the first year of The Sun's birth, there was a party held at a hotel in London. I was standing next to Rupert at this little party, and he said to me, where should I expand next? Now, you see, I was a young journalist, I was like 24, and I was so amazed that here we were taking part in a great experiment. He was already thinking ahead. But in a couple of years, he was already off and away to San Antonio and Texas and, and, and adventuring out. In 1973, he paid $19 million for the San Antonio Express News. In 1974, he launched the supermarket tabloid, The National Star, for $9 million. New York's Village Voice he got for 7.6 million in 77. But the biggest was the New York Post in 76 for $30 million. 
In New York, between the Brooklyn and Manhattan bridges, stands the building which serves as Murdoch's North American headquarters. His office is on the top floor of the New York Post building. Anthea Disney knew Murdoch in those early American days and later worked for him. New York and the States was a very different kind of place. It was a place where if you worked really hard and you did really well, the world would open up to you. Over that period, he went from being an unknown Australian magazine and newspaper magnate to actually being quite a, an important guy in the city because he had such a bully pulpit with the New York Post. The blackout is believed to have been caused by a major electrical... 1977 was a year in New York when there was a major blackout. Then that was followed almost immediately by the Son of Sam story, which was a serial killer who killed a number of couples in lovers' lanes. The city was, in, was scared. The Post was all over this story, and Steve Dunleavy was the primary reporter. He, he did an incredible job. I guess uh, we've been accused of being ungentlemanly sometimes in our news gathering, uh, hopefully not our news reporting, because I think we, uh, we do a very, very accurate and thorough job. But it's more than that. People have accused you uh, of mean, ugly, and violent journalism. <laughs> mean and ugly, violent? I don't think so. No, I just would say aggressive journalism. Rupert Murdoch loved The Post. He turned a sedate tabloid into a Gotham must-read. He brought in a gossip column, more aggressive reporting, and editorial pages which didn't flinch from backing enthusiastically one candidate in particular for mayor, Ed Koch. I don't get involved in the internecine warfare between the major papers. I mean, I'd have to be a schnook uh, to take sides as it relates to that. But if you're asking me to comment on the journalism at the New York Post, I think he's... Uh, taken a paper which was rather tired and uh, bland and made it rather lively. Ed Koch, I would say, probably would thank the Post for electing him because Rupert liked Ed Koch. He was a law and order guy and Ed Koch won resoundingly. But not everyone saw the Post as a force for good in the city. In 1981, Robert Manoff, editor of the Columbia Journalism Review, spoke out. He has upped the ante on sensationalism in the city. I'd like to send a message of sympathy to my journalistic colleagues in London and to ask them to be aware of what happened in New York where journalists with social responsibility in, have left the post in droves. This is the roundup from London, but uh, a wonderful attack on us from the observer. Back in Britain, the chorus of disapproval of Murdoch's journalism was already growing. But for his critics, it was about to get a whole lot worse. Rupert the Barbarian was about to strike right into the heart of Britain's journalistic establishment. The Thompson family had offered the Times and Sunday Times for sale. Charles Wheeler reported for the BBC. Rupert Murdoch, as controversial a newspaper magnate as ever owned a Fleet Street paper, seems all set to take over Times Newspapers Limited. The only obstacle to his ownership is an agreement with the unions, including the journalists and the printers. That's quite a hurdle. This new undertaking I regard as the most exciting challenge of my life. With a depressing history of industrial disruption and mounting losses, the Times seemed doomed. The owners were keen to take Murdoch's money. The journalists weren't. Times historian Graham Stewart. Rupert Murdoch was the only potential buyer who said he saw a future for the Times, and that is why the Thompson owners were very keen that, that Rupert Murdoch should buy the paper. He had become the shining knight. I was one of a small group who 
tried to ensure that his bid was referred to the Monopolies Commission. Former Sunday Times journalist Magnus Linklater. They saw him as somebody who owned the Sun. That was not the kind of journalism that we on the Sunday Times particularly appreciated. We had a pretty high opinion of ourselves. We thought that we would be kind of dragged down market, as it were, so there was a lot of apprehension about it. The government decided not to refer the bid to the MMC, relying instead on a backstop power to avoid such a referral if the newspaper concerned was not, quote, a going concern. To get the deal through, though, Murdoch had to agree to a series of legally binding undertakings, which, amongst other things, allowed him to appoint editors, but ostensibly guaranteed them considerable freedom to operate, independent of their proprietor. Well, the editorial guarantees are entirely satisfactory, and that, to me, is the single most important thing. At the time, it satisfied New Times editor Harold Evans. The freedom to comment, to select news, to hire and fire, if necessary, staff is vital. In Panorama tonight, we ask, who's afraid of Rupert Murdoch? But other members of the media were not convinced. Would you play any part in determining the views they put forward at election times? No, certainly not. Uh, they won't ask me. Even if they were entirely opposed to what you felt was right? Absolutely. It'll, it'll hurt like hell, but um, I have to content myself elsewhere. I have, on behalf of News International, informed the Thompson organisation that we have completed... The sale went ahead, with Murdoch paying £12 million for the Times and Sunday Times. Were those undertakings, by and large, in your view, adhered to or not? In my view, what is remarkable is how well Rupert Murdoch has, has kept to the guarantees. Rupert Murdoch has never interfered directly in what, is, in what has been written, in contrast to The Sun. That's Graham Stewart's view, but Murdoch's track record on The Times is hotly disputed. The evidence cited against Murdoch is the enforced resignation of Harold Evans in March 1982, around a year after the Murdoch takeover. You mentioned that there were differences with Mr Murdoch. And uh, is that the reason why you resign? Uh, it, it is pretty obvious that. We were attacking Thatcher. He didn't like that. We were attacking Reagan. He didn't like that. Evans's former assistant editor, Anthony Holden, has a very clear view of what was going on. I thought I'd been in on some of the meetings with Murdoch and his senior henchmen. The foul language was surprising at that level of business. The way Harry was treated was disgraceful. So when Harry did finally resign, the next day I went into work, cleared my desk and walked out. But that's not how everyone sees it. Again, Times historian Graham Stewart. Harry Evans was an amazingly successful editor of the Sunday Times, without doubt one of the great editors of the 20th century. But the translation from editing a Sunday newspaper to a daily newspaper are different skills. He proved a genius at the first, but, uh, as was shown by results, didn't work out the second. Mr Murdoch, you've threatened to close the papers twice since you owned them. One wonders why you bought them in the first place. I do too. Well, what's the answer? Hmm? I suppose we trusted people. By 1986, a clearly exasperated Rupert Murdoch was heading for more trouble. His one-time friends, the print unions, were in uproar over the proposed introduction of new technology which would end the era of hot metal and, with it, generations of union control of the production process. All the time, though, as he negotiated with the unions on one hand, Murdoch was setting up a new high-tech printing plant on the other, in Wapping, East London. 
Mr Murdoch has turned his back on. I must say I'm absolutely amazed that the company haven't been prepared to have constructive discussions with us. Squaring up to Rupert Murdoch was Brenda Dean, then the General Secretary of the Print Union, SOGAT. In the 17 years we've been in Britain, we rose from £12 million a year to £150 million a year with bad, idle, wasteful practices in all our plants. The whopping dispute has produced some of the worst scenes of violence since the miners' strike. Behind us, they're just charging straight behind people, and there's one person being charged. One person has been charged to the ground by the police horses. We didn't even have a tannoy message to say, we are giving you a warning, we're coming in. They just came. Our people are calling it Murdoch's Cavalry. I mean, it's dreadful what's happening. Was there a point in the dispute where you thought, we're going to lose this? Oh, yes, pretty early on. In the first months, he showed that he could produce a paper. I mean, the papers were the cash cow for the Murdoch empire. It was cash just pouring into the company. This morning, readers of the Sunday Times and the News of the World woke up to a newspaper revolution because these are the first national mass circulation papers to be printed by the new technology in Britain. We know he met Mrs Thatcher about this. We know that the police ensured that the lines were open for them. He really did engage all the pressure and influence that he could. Meanwhile, on the other side of the lines, Inside the plant, Roy Greenslade. I remember one day I went down prodnosing, as we called it, to try and sharpen everything up. And there was this figure stooped over a, uh, a board, and I could see he was working very hesitantly. And I screamed at him and said, you know, if, we, if you're hoping to get this paper out any time soon, you better get your get finger out. And uh, the figure in a grey jumper turned round, and it was Rupert. And I was just completely like turned to stone on the spot. And later on, Kelvin McKenzie, the editor, said to me, Rupert says you can't be doing everything all wrong if you're making sure that people are working hard. I had literally XSAS guys as my bodyguards for the whole six months to a year. And as we came out of Wapping, there would be a massive surge of pickets, police horses, and I used to press down the window and I'd give them a massive V sign, right, like, at that, really fantastic it was, um, unbelievable, right, and then we'd drive off, and we were off down the road. Rupert calls up and he says, how's your friends, the pickets, right, I said, how do you mean? He said, you know, the ones that you keep giving the V sign to on the way out? Well, they seem all right. They'd be a lot bloody better if you didn't give them the V sign. Pack it up! Bang! Do, do you remember appearing on um, This Week, Next Week with him? Yeah, we both were fighting our corner. They were being trained to run printing machines. And they but knew... of course, what type of fool do you think I am? Of course. You are threatening strikes. What, I mean, I'm entitled to make... But uh, what kind of an employer, Mr Murdoch, I'm actually recruits a, a parallel workforce and sacks the workforce that's worked for him many did, years? I didn't sack it. You walked out. No, you, you took them out, Miss Dane. Secret talks in the whopping dispute. Rupert Murdoch offers the unions a new and final deal. You sound like you have almost a grudging respect for him. I've got respect for Murdoch. He's one of the best businessmen I've ever met. Murdoch... If you did a deal with him, you didn't need it in writing. With Maxwell, you needed it in blood. But with Murdoch, you didn't need it in writing. 
he, if he did a deal with you, my experience was he delivered. We're just taking a short break from Murdoch at 80, produced by Colin McNulty, to remind you that you're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Support for ReSound comes from Osray Garden, offering custom flower bouquets, jewelry, candles, and more for Valentine's Day. The store is located at 1935 West North Avenue in Chicago. You could be the next Rupert Murdoch. Start small. Send us an email. Questions, comments, rants, and raves can be sent to resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Coming up, the Murdoch conglomerate sets its sights on television and goes into $8 billion of debt to get it. Now, back to the second half hour of Murdoch at 80. He left the oath-taking ceremony, clutching his citizenship, potentially the admission ticket to even greater fortune. There was a very particular reason why Rupert Murdoch chose to change his nationality in 1985. It was to satisfy American laws that prevented non-US nationals from owning TV stations. So although he already owned the New York Post and other US print assets, Electronic media and TV is where Rupert Murdoch saw the future. He'd hired me to think about and and to start the process of an evolution to an electronic business. Gary Davey, an old Australian associate right back from Adelaide News Days, was brought in. He called a, a meeting of his newspaper publishers and at the beginning of the meeting he said, maybe drilling oil to make ink and cutting down trees to make paper is not the best way to communicate with the population. And there was this stunned look around the room, and then he pointed to me and he said, Gary's joined the company to help us figure that out. Rupert is obviously a formidable newspaper man and loves newspapers with you know, a passion probably greater than anyone in the world at this point. But very easy to underestimate Rupert as a television broadcaster. Peter Chernin spent over 20 years working at News Corp and rose to the very top of the company. As Murdoch's number two, he worked as president and chief operating officer. At the very beginning, he was sort of, I think, commuting back and forth between Los Angeles and New York. And then for probably the next five or eight years, you know, he and I worked across the hall from each other. So he was a constant presence. Murdoch began buying up entertainment assets, including the film studio 20th Century Fox in 1985 and a number of independent television stations with a view to starting his own new Fox network. He plans to couple the stations to his film studios in Hollywood to create nothing less than a fourth American television network, Fox Broadcasting, to take on CBS, NBC and ABC. The idea that you would start a little upstart competitor on a series of weak television stations was considered close to insanity. Total cost of this move to Murdoch, $1.6 billion. I think Rupert believes that you know, successful, entrenched incumbents are by definition vulnerable. And success makes you complacent, it makes you play things safe, it gives you a sense of entitlement, and that you're always vulnerable in those sort of entrenched monopoly situations. In Rupert Murdoch's global empire, four satellite channels beaming pictures primarily to Britain. His Sky Channel should be the first of a bewildering array of... But British network. television was on the verge of a revolution too. Cable TV had failed to catch on, but satellite, meanwhile, was showing distinct signs of life. Murdoch had been in satellite TV in a small way since 1983, with one loss-making pan-European channel, Sky TV. All that was about to change, but first, the technology had to evolve, because at that time, if you wanted satellite TV, your back garden would have to resemble the Jodrell Bank Observatory. Gary Davy again. 
The smallest satellite dish we could use was about three and a half metres in diameter. And I remember in a meeting, he was particularly cranky about the lack of progress. And he said to me, Gary, this thing is not going to be a business until you can deliver me a satellite dish the size of this coffee table. Well, I measured the coffee table later. It was 65 centimetres in diameter. And I said to him with all sincerity, Mr Murdoch, I'm sorry, it's just technically not possible. If you didn't think it could be done technologically, this was a major gamble, wasn't it? Oh, yes. On top of that, there was a rival operation to Sky, the government-licensed operator British Satellite Broadcasting. A consortium involving some big players from the British television and media establishment, crucially, it was peddling a different-shaped dish. I don't know if any of you recall the square reel. Oh, yes. But they used to demonstrate it with a handmade wooden replica of what this thing was going to look like. It's not just a question of style. The two rivals really are very different characters. Sky is the brash young upstart. Its modest studio complex is on an industrial estate, just below the Heathrow flight path. BSB, on the other hand, is rather more dignified. It's housed in a discreet but elegant edifice just south of Chelsea Bridge. Both BSB and Sky like to cultivate their differences. We're going the sort of, um, let's call it loosely, the quality route, and I think... I'm Former BSB chief executive Anthony Simmons-Gooding. You know, they're going a more of a, a, a brash sort of news of the world sun route. They are the media establishment of this country, blessed by the IBA to have this wonderful monopoly to themselves. They're very angry because we found a way of challenging them. Whereas BSB, in the manner of the Rolls-Royce operation it saw itself as, launched its own satellites, Sky just leased theirs, which had the effect of seeing them on air fully 13 months ahead of the competition. Maggie Brown, now at The Guardian, was media editor of The Independent when Murdoch launched Sky Television proper on the 5th of February 1989. It was so extraordinary. It was all in these airless, dusty, pokey offices. And at six o'clock, Rupert Murdoch pressed a button and he launched Sky Television. It was as simple as that. Welcome to Sky Television. You were standing next to him. I stood next to him. I said, Rupert, is it going to work? And he looked at me sideways. He smiled, a little sort of half smile, and he shrugged and he said, it's a wing and a prayer. This is a television revolution. A revolution in quality entertainment. A revolution in choice. This is Sky News. Ten Britons will sell their kidneys to this man. The new face of Moore's murderer, Myra Hindley, back in hospital this week. And the heart-lung mother says, happy birthday, son. Well, joining us now direct from Sky Television's headquarters is John O'Lone, who's head of news at Sky. Good morning. Good morning. What's your estimate of how many people watched last night? Uh, in the newsroom, I think there were about 250. Um... <laughs> Anyone else outside? Uh, off the satellite, uh, I know I got uh, calls from uh, my family who thought it was very good. Now, Mr Murdoch, I see, is quoted as saying that this will raise the standards of the BBC and ITN. He can't be serious. Uh, well, I hope it does, actually. The BBC and ITV didn't want this new competitor coming in. Murdoch biographer William Shawcross. And they said, oh, no one will want council house television. It's only for men with gold chains around their necks and things like that. It's very snobbish, the attitude to Sky to begin with. Now, what are you telling viewers they'll be able to see on your channels? Will they be able to see the kind of quality material of your Sunday Times, your Times newspapers, or are they going to be looking for page three of The Sun or the news of the world? Well, I think you can be pretty confident it won't be page three of the sun. We like to keep that exclusive. 
Murdoch was loving it. He appeared to like nothing better than doing public battle with the old TV establishment. Jon Snow, Jeremy Paxman, all grist to Murdoch's mill. I don't know what you mean by down market and up market. That is so English, class-ridden snobbery when you talk like that. We broadcast for everybody. We come from other parts of the world. I'm an Australian by birth. I believe in equality and I think everyone's equal and I want to give everybody a good choice. But there was a more prestigious stage awaiting at that year's Edinburgh Television Festival, where, by tradition, the great and good of the television industry gather every August. I'd be grateful if you'd welcome the 14th McTaggart lecturer, Rupert Murdoch. Were you at Edinburgh when Murdoch made his speech? Yes. I can remember the hostility was kind of, it was like sort of... A wall of hostility. It was like, sort of, it's like bad, like halitosis, green, yeah, yeah, coming from everywhere. Yeah. And what, what I remember almost most clearly about it was his attack on Stone Age British television. It wasn't just that they were who they were and publicly funded. It was what they did and how they did it. To the British establishment with its dislike of money-making and its notion that public service is the preserve of paternalists. I realise that I face many such people in this audience today. My own view is that anybody who, within the law of the land, provides a service which the public wants at a price it can afford is providing a public service. And as in newspapers, so in television, our role is that of a monopoly destroyer, not the monopolist. What we didn't realise at the time of that remarkable lecture was that Murdoch was really up against the financial wall. To launch Sky, he'd put the whole empire in hock. News Corp had bought TV Guide in America for $3 billion and thanks to an untimely credit squeeze, matters were getting serious. Christo Hurd was an investigative journalist and former city analyst. He was also, once upon a time, editor of the Sunday Times Insight team. That is, until he was sacked under then-new proprietor, Rupert Murdoch. The total debt at that time was $8 billion. And when the banks got worried, they wanted the money back and he was in no position to pay them. But if you owe the bank £80, you're at their mercy. If you owe them £8 billion, they're at yours. There were these long, complex negotiations with over 130 banks who lent him money to reschedule these debts. And he started selling assets and he sold them much faster than they were expecting. And so earlier than expected, he was able to improve the terms of the rescue. On the few occasions I saw him... Anthea Disney. He seemed more internally focused. He seemed quieter, he seemed less outgoing, and he was clearly very concerned. He seemed tired, like he really needed a break. And of course, he, he got a break. The two satellite television companies, Sky and BSB, have merged. Sky was steadily increasing viewership, but still losing £100 million a year. BSB wasn't selling nearly enough square reels. The companies joined, split their losses, and combined their audiences. The merger of BSB and Sky saved Murdoch's financial skin. In 1992, the merged B Sky B bought the rights to top flight soccer for over 300 million pounds. Then viewership really took off and B Sky B was flooded with cash. And today, that's a business turning in profits of a billion pounds a year. The gambler had really hit the jackpot. This is the way capitalism is supposed to work, isn't it? B big risk nets big reward. Do you have any sneaking admiration for it? Oh, I, think, I don't think anybody who's looked at Murdoch's business can be anything other than to some extent admiring. The issue, you know, that is raised, and this is the, the great paradox, you know, with a market economy, is that you want competition 
all companies in competition strive to establish market dominance. And the moment they get market dominance, of course, it eliminates the competition. And in the case of the media, it establishes all sorts of issues of public policy. Anybody could have started Sky Television. Anybody. And we started it. And people are still free to start against us. But they'd rather write articles, bitch and moan, until we get this people being equally entrepreneurial, really driving at it. That Britain's going to get going again. Some people regard him as a pretty fundamental threat to democracy. Itself. I know it's astonishing to me that it's astonishing that people see him as Lucifer trailing clouds of sulphur, largely because he is so astonishingly successful. But not only does Murdoch not seem to mind the cartoonish image of the rapacious media mogul, he sometimes seems to revel in it. Here he is, featured in his very own network's super hit show, The Simpsons. What the bloody hell? Hit the road, Grams. This is a private skybox. I'm River Murdoch, the billionaire tyrant, and this is my skybox. Seize them! Peter Chernin, former News Corp president. You know, they had an idea that it would be fun to get Rupert to come do it and to get him to record his voice, which he was a great sport about. You know, Rupert's got a very sort of naughty Australian sense of humor and loves the idea of people poking fun at things in general, but I think also likes the idea of people poking fun at him. Before all the political bullcrap, Sarah Palin was just a mom of five. She was my kind of leader. Glenn, thank you so much for letting me be here. I, I... One of his companies has generated a huge amount of discussion over his, that is Murdoch's, claimed political influence. Fox News was launched in America in 1996. The channel has achieved almost legendary status for a no-nonsense approach to news and the barely disguised, actually their celebrated, right-wing opinions of its pundits. Observer columnist and commentator Henry Porter. I think there are two things that drive Rupert Murdoch. The first is a broadly right-wing agenda, a broadly conservative agenda. Is, uh, it, is it particularly scary? I think it's scary when it's deployed in Fox, yes. I mean, if you know that all four Republican candidates in America are signed up as Fox columnists, are undertaken, are committed to Fox in some way, um, that, that is worrying. He's, he's running half the politics in America. Now for the top story tonight, as you may know, Fox News has hired Governor Sarah Palin to do news analysis. That has thrown the left-wing media into a conniption. I know that I criticize you and Fox News a lot, but only because you're truly a terrible, cynical, disingenuous news organization. Former News Corporation president Peter Chernin has a unique perspective on the Fox position. You know, I think it's quite well known that I have fairly different political views than Rupert. Much of the media has sort of talked about Fox consistently as being right-wing, and I think that most of the opinions on there are probably right-wing, but they are absolutely labeled as opinion. Islamic extremism, Europe on the brink, even pirates now. Closer to home, Mexico isn't safe for vacations or our kids anymore. Many people in the media thought that Fox News was successful because it was right-wing, etc. And I, I absolutely don't think that's true. I think it was successful because it was livelier, it was more interesting, there's better graphics, it's faster paced, there are more interesting people on there. Um, and so I, I think it's a triumph more than anything of broadcasting. There's no doubt that Rupert Murdoch has a lot of power and influence. Very few, if any, doors are closed to him. And politicians of all hues here in Britain, at least, seem to feel the need to pay homage. But the question is how he uses it and what for. On one side, we have Murdoch supporters like Peter Chernin and William Shawcross. On the other, 
the likes of Henry Porter and Roy Greenslade. The reason we should be worried is if 175 newspapers are owned by Rupert Murdoch's News Corporation and 175 of them say back the Iraq war, then I think we have reasons to be concerned and that's exactly what happened. The point I think is important is that he uses his political power, which is enormous now, to further his commercial interests. He was very open and transparent about it. I want to see $20 a barrel oil. I want the war. Rupert, is there any agenda that you want to shape? Take the war. Have you shaped that agenda at all? No, I don't think so. I mean, we've tried. (laughs) (laughs) Tried in what way? Uh, Our papers and our television. I would say supported the Bush policy in the Middle East. We've been very critical of its execution. Our support hasn't meant very much because clearly public opinion now has grown very, very tired of the whole enterprise. There are blogs, there are hundreds if not thousands of news internet sites and the number of voices in this society has just expanded exponentially and that the idea of one gentleman having this undue power I just think is wildly unrealistic. If Fox News were so powerful... You know, someone then needs to explain to me how we have a democratic president in this country. In order to maintain the health of a free society and the freedom, as it were, of politicians to act, you have to look at the control of a big monopolistic character like Rupert Murdoch. Because what he's really interested in is building a very big empire. And what an empire it is. Major newspaper groups and TV networks on three continents. News Corp's turnover is up around $35 billion a year, with profits in excess of $5 billion. It really is some family business. Through a combination of good luck, good judgment, risk-taking on a massive scale, and sheer force of personality, Rupert Murdoch is now probably the biggest single player in global media. But there are some signs, let's put it no stronger than that, that the future may not be quite as rosy as the past. Many of his beloved newspapers are facing strategic long-term decline at the hands of electronic media and the internet, even the Wall Street Journal, which he bought only recently. Meanwhile, Murdoch's own ventures into the Wild West world of the internet have not up to now been a success. In 2005, News Corp bought the social networking site MySpace for over $500 million. Now it's worth a fraction of that, and in any event, is nowhere next to Facebook and even Twitter. His paywall strategy at the Times and Sunday Times is reportedly struggling to recruit sufficient subscribers, and whilst many in the newspaper business wish him well, they also struggle to see how his new US iPad newspaper, The Daily, can ever really work commercially. Biographer Michael Wolfe. Of anyone who has been involved in the internet business, he's failed more. He's made every misstep that you could possibly make. I mean, he's screwed it up at every moment. The idea of the internet itself, this medium that passes power from producer to consumer, this, I think, is is anathema to him. Then there's the sense that the comfortable maturity Murdoch always saw as a weakness in others and attacked so ruthlessly is now to be found in parts of his own empire. The new generation of internet entrepreneurs now look at Murdoch and News Corp as a juicy target, just the way that he looked at, say, the British press in the 60s and American television in the 80s. Throw in the sheer size and scale of News Corp's businesses and Murdoch's direct hands-on approach, and some of the difficulties are plain to see. If evidence of that were needed, look no further than the phone-hacking scandal that is casting such an unpleasant shadow over his UK operations. Murdoch has now rolled up his sleeves and begun to sort things out. But what does that say for the way his trusted senior management, including heir apparent James Murdoch, 
have handled matters up to now. And there's the issue of succession. Rupert now has six children from three marriages, all with a future stake in the company. But it is less a question of who, although one can imagine that adding a certain spice to family gatherings, than whether anyone can pick up where Rupert Murdoch must at some point leave off. Former journalist at The Australian, Gideon Haig. If anything, Rupert is the only reason for the organisation to exist. Kind of the uh, the, the synergy, the, uh, the the tie that binds all those properties together. And there are now so many mouths around the Murdoch dining table. I foresee you know considerable bloodletting and uh, and squabbles once that takes place. The post Rupert conversations never had, so we don't like to talk about it or think about it really. Uh, it's not something that any of us envisage ha happening anytime soon. You know, his son James, who's now executive responsible for Europe, the UK and Asia, understands the heritage very well. But again, we don't like to talk about post-Rupert. In Rupert's 80 years, enemies as well as friends acknowledge the scale of what he's achieved. And as the people we've spoken to for this programme all attest, it is Rupert Murdoch's personality, his self-deprecating wit, his charm, his tactical nous, his reputation with banks and investors, but above all, his sheer single-minded ruthlessness that is the invisible glue that holds News Corp together. And that's why, although they don't like to say or even think about it at News Corp, the post-Rupert world is such a scary place. I would imagine we move on from a swashbuckling buccaneer capitalist to a much more corporatized form of capitalism. He does like to still think he pulls all the strings, but I'm not sure whether he does or not. It's hard to believe that there is another Rupert Murdoch out there just to fill those shoes. If there is, fantastic and good luck to them. Personally, I, I have my doubts. Murdoch at 80 was produced by Colin McNulty. The story is a whistle-down production and was first heard on BBC Radio 4. Murdoch resigned as a director of News International and is still under investigation. He's now 82. ReSound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Katie Mingle and curated by Johanna Zorn. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear 1,500 outstanding documentaries from around the world. And subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. Support for ReSound also comes from the Old Town School of Folk Music, where a new class session begins March 3rd. The session includes lessons in guitar, banjo, tango dancing, singing, and more. Classes are available for beginners and advanced players, adults, and kids. More information at oldtownschool.org. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. 
The Third Coast Festival was founded in 2000 by WBEZ Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. You can also connect with us through Facebook and Twitter. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.